agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government has the government love. The government has the government love. The government Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University. I'm joined today by my conservative counterpart, Cleveland area attorney and defender of freedom, Jay Carson. Hey, good morning, Mike. Hey, Jay. So listeners won't know, but well, some listeners will know, we just finished recording our midweek show. Normally we record that second, but this was our first outing for our listener, listener chosen, listener participation segment. Uh, and this week it was, this time it was on civil conflict and civil war. And uh, it was, we were planning on it just being a segment of the midweek show, but it ended up taking up an entire hour, which I, I did not expect. But anyway, I, I really enjoyed it. Jay, I don't know what you thought. I didn't. Well, I didn't know I was. I thought I was supposed to keep talking. I didn't. Yeah, that, realize, we uh, just kept on going. But yeah, it was a lot of. We had, we had a number of listeners join in, and so I think it was great. And uh, we we hope you do too. This this experiment. We we said we were going to do it at least once a month for our supporters at that ten dollar and above level. But I think uh, we it went well enough where we're hoping we could be able to do it more than once a month. Uh, and so so yeah, if. Uh, Anyway, so we've to mentioned that, but no, it was fun. I think I think we're going to try to figure out ways to to get the listeners more involved in it. Absolutely. So right, because that that was yeah, my issue was yeah, I couldn't keep up with the comments. So so, but yeah, it was you suck, Jay. <laughs> Yeah. Anyway, we have a lot to talk about this week, aside from why Jay may or may not suck. Uh, But we're going to be getting into the the debt limit deal, some economic news, uh, uh, the strange story, maybe not so strange, of Texas Attorney General uh, Ken Paxson's impeachment, some Supreme Court stuff, Pride Month. We got a lot to talk about. And why don't we just get started, Jay, with the big story? This week, the United States will not be defaulting on its debt. Well, I guess at least not for the next couple of years. Thanks to today. Not today. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks to that last minute bipartisan action by Congress, the Fiscal Responsibility Act of 2023. It was approved by comfortable majorities in both chambers. It was 314 to 117 in the House, 63 to 36 in the Senate. Now, the legislation suspends the debt limit until 2025, slightly decreases and caps domestic spending and caps military spending at 3%. It doesn't make any changes to non-discretionary spending. So Medicare, Social Security, we'll get to that. They're unaffected. It also includes a clawback of around $20 billion of the $80 billion of supplemental IRS funding Congress approved last year taking back $27 billion in unspent COVID funds, some new work requirements for older recipients of food stamps and welfare benefits. It enacts into law the unpausing of student loan payments after the summer, which the Biden administration had previously announced, previously announced it would already be doing. And finally, it expedites construction of the Mountain Valley Natural Gas Pipeline from, you guessed it, West Virginia to Virginia because, you know, Joe Manchin. Uh, So now overall, the Congressional Budget Office estimates that this legislation will reduce the deficit by around $1.5 trillion over the next decade compared to their baseline forecast. 
Now, this, le- this final legislation, I should point out, was a lot different from where we started with that initial bill passed by the House, which is called the Limit Save Grow Act. That increased but didn't suspend the debt limit. It was only until the spring of 2024. It included deeper cuts to domestic discretionary spending. It called for clawback of almost all of that supplemental IRS appropriation. It had much more stringent work requirements for federal assistance programs. And the CBO scored that bill a lot differently. It said that it would cut the deficit by around $4.8 trillion over the next decade. And that's $3.3 trillion more than the measure that was passed. So, Jay, what do you think? Was this kind of a reasonable compromise? Anything surprising here? What's your take? No, I think this was a, a reasonable compromise. I, again, I'm one of these um, three yards in a cloud of dust kind of guys, um, right? That, that you know, let's, let's make uh, slow progress and progress that we can. Um, uh, so, and that, that view is not universally shared, but, but I think it's the right one. Um, uh, I think uh, much to everyone's surprise, Kevin McCarthy held everybody together or enough people together um, uh, to get this done. Uh, and, you know, again, no one would have would have uh, predicted this um, uh, in January uh, when he was, you know, on the trying to get elected speaker on whatever the 17th vote or whatever it was. Um, so, yeah, kudos to him. Um, uh, and, and I think you can say. You know, Biden came in with the position of I'm going to have a clean bill and we're not going to agree to anything. Well, he agreed to some stuff, which which was kind of what we expected. So, no, all, all things considered, um, you know, would I rather have seen some some other bigger concessions uh, on spending? Um, uh, sure. But but no, this is, I, I think, the uh, a, a pretty good deal. And it's a. Uh, um, you know, given the bargaining position that you have, uh, it's it, it's maybe the best you can do. Yeah, I, I would agree. And I feel like, well, there's one school of thought that says the political losers here are, are the Freedom Caucus. And, and I understand that, but I sort of disagree with it. Now, that the bill that was initially passed by the House, as I mentioned, far more uh, Far, far, far stronger on the cuts, right? It would, sure. would have done but, a, but of course, I mean, it has to be. Right? Yeah. it's negotiating. Exactly that. Not only that, but I, I, you know, there was this, there was this theory that, right? Well, McCarthy has to go along, can't make a deal because his speakership hangs in the balance. And I think that maybe out of this, we find that the power, the real power of the Freedom Caucus in crafting legislative outcomes is less than some thought it would. Now, it's not to say that they're not an important force, but not quite as important, I would argue, as maybe some people thought they were before all this happened. What do you think? Well, it gives it gives McCarthy uh, uh, the bad cop, right? <laughs> sort of there's, there's the good cop, bad cop negotiation sort of strategy. And I think, I think that's part of it. Um, is the well look you don't want these nuts in charge look what they're trying to do and and I'm just trying to you know send off them and I'll get the you know so I I think that that works I think they played that role uh, you know well um and by saying played that role I'm not saying there's anything disingenuous I really think they all wanted the stuff that they were asking for um but I think there ought to be a reflection uh, on the political reality that you're not getting you know when you have a uh, democratic uh, president and democratic uh, senate um and you have a narrow majority in the House, you're not going to get everything you want. Um, 
So no, it's it's good to, to have them out there arguing, expanding the Overton window, if you will, uh, for what could be in the negotiations. Um, but uh, you know, and if if those guys, uh, you know, if McCarthy's smart enough, which he was, um, you know, he's able to come up with enough uh, other other votes uh, to let those guys take a walk, so to speak, uh, on this one. So yeah, I think that was, and to me, like this is the this is the kind of stuff that. Um, in politics, I enjoy like so much more is the uh, getting enough uh, votes to you know get the bill out of committee or or get the bill um, uh, you know off the house as opposed to getting the uh, you know the tens of thousands of votes to get somebody elected. Um, this this you know the strategy part I I, I enjoy I find fascinating and I, I think this was you know again they uh, every every side played this pretty well. So you know there was this well. When, during the McCarthy speaker votes, there was this talk, right, about how this would essentially mean that McCarthy couldn't negotiate if he wanted, couldn't move to the center if he wanted to remain speaker. And they could call the question of leadership at any time. And yeah. yet, I admit, now you're more tuned into this stuff on the right than I am. I haven't heard anything about that yet. And I'm wondering if, if actually those folks on the far right are much more sort of strategically savvy and calculating than oftentimes is thought, because if there is no call for his speakership, then, you know, clearly then a lot of what they were doing was just essentially rhetorical and not maybe for fundraising and that sort of thing, but not really anything they intended to follow through on. At least that's my take. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's part of it. The, the other part of it, obviously, is if you're going to call to replace a speaker. Um, you really ought to have somebody else in line and someone else in line with the votes lined up. Um, and clearly and they, they don't, don't have that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, so yeah, I, I get it. It's, you know, it's a threat and there's going to be a couple who are going to grouch about, uh, you know, that, and that's fine. That, that gives them the cover they need. Um, so, you know, moving to kind of the, the larger issue here, if you take a look at what this actually does uh, to give you a sense, uh, Bloomberg uh, has a thing they call a, a debt sustainability model, and they it, they look at the U.S. debt to GDP ratio over time. Now they took a look at what this does, what this deal does to that, and they say, well, right now in 2022 is around 97 percent. By 2023, it's going to be 117 percent. That's with the deal, and this gets to what something that you kind of interjected in, in in the open is that. Well, this doesn't, this is three yards in a cloud or a yard and a half, maybe in a cloud of dust. Because if we take a look at what was touched and what was saved, right? Discretionary spending was the only thing that was focused on. And just to give folks a sense, in fiscal year 2022, we have 1.7 trillion in discretionary spending compared to 4.1 trillion in mandatory spending. But that's not really the best way to look at it because if you assume that you don't really want to touch much or any of defense, which most folks on the right don't, well, because that's technically discretionary, that leaves you only around $900 billion out of a $5.8 trillion budget, roughly 15% of your budget. And there's no way you're cutting your way to sustainability if you're working with just 15% of your budget, unless you want to completely and utterly devastate those programs. Now, there was plenty of folks who would be okay with that, but but it seems to me that that's maybe what you were reacting to in the opening. Yeah, no, and and it's not, and, and I think 
if if people are being realistic, um, one realistic on the numbers, two realistic on the politics, um, you you have to say this is this took us a this debt problem we have got us took us a long time uh, to get into, uh, albeit we got into uh, a whole lot of it in the last couple of years, uh, a whole lot more of it in the last couple of years. Um, it's going to take a long time to get out of it, and the it, it's sort of saying, listen. Uh, I got to lose 20 pounds. Um, you know, you, you might say, well, uh, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll quit eating for three weeks. Um, or you can say, well, you know what, I'll have a salad for lunch tomorrow. Um, yeah, the salad for lunch isn't, is it going to change, uh, uh, things dramatically? No, but it's a step in the right direction. Assuming and you have the discipline starting... to do that for lunch. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's the problem, yeah. right? Sometimes. Right, but but again, keep in mind. Uh, before there was no no dis there was no salad ever. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was really like, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, uh, I'll I'll take another double cheeseburger um, uh, with extra bacon, please. Um, you know that was, you know that was sort of the the mentality that that nothing was ever cut, and and there was always sort of the wailing and gnashing of teeth uh, from the left, and as there was this time of this is going to you know throw poor people out and. Um, destitution and, and desolation uh, everywhere. Um, if the government's held to one percent uh, discretionary spending, um, so I, you know, and I, I think I think I think as those as those those voices of doom um, uh, tend to be proven wrong, uh, people might realize, hey, you know what? Um, maybe we can um, uh, take steps to start reducing our debt, uh, reducing our deficit, um, preventing deficits. Um, that that are not, you know, end of the world injurious. Um, but I think the larger and, point, I, and I agree. But this is, you know, this is more to stick with the uh, the salad analogy. This is more like saying, well, you know, I'm I'm still going to have the uh, the top sirloin, the loaded baked potato, and uh, the bread platter. But take two croutons off of my salad. You know, <laughs> that's my plan. Well, that's in, in the end, and and that's the larger point is that. Unless you either increase revenues or get into defense as well as and or mandatory spending, you don't really have a path to sustainability, I don't think. And, and for instance, if we take a look at on the left, a lot of what we want to do is on the tax side. And if we look at our biggest revenue sources, well, uh, individual income taxes are roughly around 48% of revenues. And that's followed by Social Security and Medicare taxes around 32%. That's 80% right there. I mean, everything else, small potatoes, uh, corporate income taxes are third. That's only 9%. So basically, if we want to do anything on the taxation side, well, that has to come from individual income taxes or doing something with Social Security and Medicare taxes. There's just no other way to really get the revenue increases that some on the left want Without it's the same, you know, the same, uh, the same problem in reverse, right? And so I imagine you would agree with that. Well, mostly. Um, although here's, I mean, here's the thing: there is, and you could, you could try to uh, be uh, a point that uh, I don't know. I mean, there's probably some examples you could find, but when has the left uh, ever said, "Look, let's really cut spending"? Uh, and it's, it's just that's just not that. The the uh, the problem, and I've admitted this a number of times, even amongst Republicans, is that spending always, 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 always increases. Um, 
So if, if you even just doing a little bit to say, we're going to stop making the problem worse, um, is a step in the right direction. Sure. But, but I think, I think, I think if people see that there is, there can be electoral success in doing that, um, uh, more will be encouraged to do it. Yeah, but but again, and well, number one on the the left never wants anything to be cut. I think there was a, an element in the well, defense, left. I suppose. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, and I think given, like like total spending to be cut. They'd like, yeah. But given that defense is over something like over half of all discretionary spending, that's not nothing. Now, I would disagree with with probably all, all those cuts, or at least the more draconian elements of those cuts. But yeah, it's it, there are, but 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 I think though. There are ways to increase revenues that are not ruinous in the same way that people on the right believe there are ways to cut uh, uh, to cut a spending that are not ruinous. Right. Sure. Like, for instance, sure. I think it would be reasonable to see that because there's folks might not know there's a cap on annual earnings that are subject to Social Security taxes. Right. There's no cap. There's no cap for that on Medicare taxes. And so I think. At the very now, every year or just about every year, that cap increases based on uh, uh, wage increases, average wage increases, that sort of thing. But like right now, it's uh, one hundred sixty thousand two hundred dollars, and after that, you don't pay any social security taxes. I would be okay with something like making it maybe four hundred thousand dollars and indexing it based on that going forward, or even you know more radical, just to. Take it away altogether, though. I should point out the Medicare wage tax is a lot lower. That's one point one point four five percent, and the Social Security tax is twelve point four percent. That's split between equally between the employer and employee. So there are greater consequences to just ending that entirely. And I recognize that, but I think it can be it can be raised certainly. I, right. I might, I might go and I'm not committing myself here to something like a, a broadening the base, but lowering the rate piece, something like that. I guess. So you're saying maybe make it like 10%, five, five each, but raise it. I see what you're saying. Yeah. That, you know, yeah. maybe there's room for, yeah, I mean, that's, I would say that's the general, uh, you know, more conservative philosophy on taxes is what you're, what you're better off with is an overall broader base, but a lower rate. But I don't think anyone's Hence, talking. you know, like arguments for flat taxes and yeah. so forth. But but nobody's talking about that. I mean, nobody. No, no, no. I'm I'm saying it's the same sort of principle. Yeah. No, no. I, but I meant I meant that you generate that you end up generating more money from a broader base at a lower rate, because the lower the it's it's the rate and the incremental rate that that uh, can be the the speed bump to growth and and so forth. But um, I think I think the so. problem is that no one's even seriously considering this. I mean, on, on, on the left, right, the Biden administration says there will be no new taxes for anyone under, what, $400,000 or something like that is the number, I think, I, I recall. But the point being is that, well, this would be a tax on everyone. And so that's a, that's a no-go for the left. And then on the right, the idea of essentially raising any sort of taxes is deeply, deeply problematic. They want to go in the other way. And yet we have this we have this retirement program that is not sustainable in any model I've seen. So therefore, you can either raise revenues to pay for it or you can cut benefits. And certainly no one's talking about cutting Social Security benefits. So that doesn't put us in a really good place. Ron DeSantis was. 
Yeah, well, there you go. <laughs> Trump will tell you. In all the commercials, yeah, the, the Trump commercials, yeah. It's, but yeah. I think I, we both agree that that's just not long term sustainable, given the given the oh, impact. Yeah. yeah. So. Yeah. I, you know. I, and, and keep keep in mind the other the other piece of, of, I mean, just the way Social Security operates is that it's the, the giant Ponzi scheme. Um, it's it's not actual money that's kept and saved. And right. There's no lockbox. Yeah. Taken from the next. Yeah. Um, so there's, there's, there's a demographic challenge in there as well. Uh, when you have a, a larger, you know, bigger bulge in the snake, so to speak. Exactly. And which, which we're, which we're experiencing at this point and will be for a while now. So, yeah, you know, when I look at our, I took a look at our, our budget, uh, revenues and expenditures kind of historically. And it seems to me, if we take a look at that kind of normal-ish period, like after the financial crisis and before COVID, because I think that for various reasons, looking at those two periods, including those two periods is problematic, right? Because of the unique nature of the challenges. Although you can say, well, it seems like stuff happens, right? So maybe it is important. But if we just set those aside, it seems to me that we're kind of looking at, well, we're looking at a structural deficit of maybe around three quarters of a trillion dollars per year. Uh, that's a pretty big structural deficit, right? Um, uh, it's a lot of money to make up, and you're not going to do that by removing a couple of croutons from your salad. And, and I thought about, well, what would be a way to do that? And, and I'm going to run my rough plan by you. And okay, you'll here tell we me, go. You'll tell me the things you hate the most, okay? Start with, and this comes from Bernie Sanders, I think originally maybe, but- uh, Not off to a good start. Uh, a Wall Street trade tax. Uh, that's like a 0.01% tax on trades. Um, now, we actually used to have something like this from, I believe, like 1914 through the 1960s. So this isn't a new idea, right? Um, I would like to see a modest wealth tax. I'd like to see a- as well, a modest carbon tax that also includes refundable tax credits for people at lower incomes. So that's sort of the basic elements of my less radical plan. And I'm sure that you don't even oh, like my less, less radical plan. That's my less radical plan. Yeah. I thought yeah. I'd start with that. Um, no, my, my issue with the, um, the trade tax is it, it increases cost. <laughs> On the one hand, you're, we're sort of telling uh, America, um, and not that it's not true, that, you know, Social Security might not uh, be here for you, uh, which ought to be in a, uh, a spur to put more money into your private investments. Um, and then we're going to tax those private investments uh, further. Um, I think that's I think that's a bad idea. I think I think what you want is to have more people, um, more trading or more free movement of capital. Uh, I think that's that's better all the way around um, on a wealth tax. Um, I think I think the bigger issue there is setting aside the policy. I think you've got to get around the constitutional problem of it. Right. And there, there are putting putting that aside. I think we we talked about that. Geez, it's been a while now, but there are potentially ways that you could structure it that would it would not be technically a wealth tax. But but yeah, you're right. There there are. There would be challenges. There are going to be constitutional yes. challenges, regardless of how you, you do it. Exactly. Um, the other the other piece of the wealth tax is um, wealthy people. A lot of times are wealthy because they're smart, um, <laughs> or sometimes and, not. But okay, yeah, but good. Or sometimes not. No, but but here's the thing. Um, 
even if the, even if they're not smart, they have the money to hire smart people um, who can help them avoid that sort of thing. Um, so if, if if you're you're saying, look, I'm I don't want to get hit with the wealth tax, there may well be some um, you know creative estate planning ways and gifting ways and you know that sort of thing uh, to reduce your liability for any wealth tax, assuming one would be constitutional. Let me say um, before we go on to the uh, uh, carbon tax. I want to say that at one level, I agree with you because it's it's indisputably true that if you tax something, you tend to get less of it because taxing puts in puts in place, right, a barrier to something. It increases cost. Literally, it increases the cost of something. And if you increase the cost of something, you're going to get less of it. So on that, and you're also going to get people who put more efforts into finding ways to avoid paying those increased costs, tax, tax avoidance, tax evasion, whatever. So I, I totally agree with you. Or, or, I mean, sure, I mean, you, you, I mean, someone could, could well say, uh, say I've got, you know, a couple billion dollars and I'm, I'm getting towards the end of my life. Um, I, I could very well say something like, um, uh, Hey, um, uh, you know, maybe I'll just give a, a whole chunk of money to, to charity because I'd rather give it away and have someone else do it than have the government take it. But, I, maybe so. I agree with you on that, but I think you'll also agree with me that that doesn't mean that tax that there should be no taxes on anything, right? But even though if there were no taxes on anything, that would dramatically increase activity because those extra costs would be zero, right? The the logic still follows. You're not saying that there should be no personal income tax, no corporate income tax, no sales tax. You're right. Just to be clear, just for a starting point, you would yeah, not. I, I think so. I mean, right. I, yeah, I'm you not, would, I'm not saying, yeah, everything should be zero. Although there, there, I think there certainly could be taxes that, that could be eliminated. There but, are, but that's there my are point. a number of states that don't have a personal income tax that do quite, that do fine. Right. But my point is that, is that yes, you are right in your arguments that, taxes, increasing taxes has some negative consequences. But I am also right in that having taxes at a certain level has some very positive consequences. And I'm just saying, I, I, I'm hoping- The price we, say, price we pay for civilization, as Oliver Wendell Holmes said, right? Yeah, and you wouldn't disagree with that, right? So I get that. And that's what I'm saying is that, well, what we're disagreeing on then really isn't the idea of taxes. We're both and this is going to pain you. We're both for taxes. It's just a matter of degree. And so, you know, you might, I, I, I might be okay with the top marginal rate of 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 fifty percent, ninety eight percent. Well, yeah. no, not ninety eight. <laughs> but and just like you're okay with a financial transaction tax of zero, or I might be okay with one of zero point zero one percent. So anyway, and, and also I, I add on to that, I. Add on to, to Holmes' aphorism, I would say I think uh, part of the problem is civilization's overpriced. <laughs> okay, yeah, um, I, but, and I would say we are undervaluing that sort of thing. But you didn't talk about the carbon tax yet, and I, I'll point out that yet. that was, of course, originally because I'm, I'm, I'm not because I'm not exactly sure how that works. So walk me through it. Well, it was it was originally uh, you know originally a conservative idea, right? You you recall that. That came from the right. Well, it wasn't wasn't my idea. But, well, no, but, but it was. <laughs> yes, there were there were there were conservatives who floated that back in like the the late eighties, early nineties. Yeah. yeah, and I think it's a it's really a twofer. If you tax if you tax carbon at uh, a certain level, you not only get increased revenue, 
but you get ideally more of an incentive to move away from fossil fuels. So it's an environmental win as well. Right. And so that's and, why- and with that, I presume there'd also be the idea of you could trade the carbon credits and so forth. Yeah, I would. And that's generally was part of that was generally part of all the conservative Right. The idea that, that. It'll, there will be a market for for carbon tax credits. Exactly. Uh, that that so if if you if you did something good uh, by not uh, generating a lot of carbon, you would get credits that you could then sort of sell transfer sell to someone yeah. who was bad. And so there'd be an uh, overall level that was allowed, and then it would just kind of work based on yeah, exactly the number of that. Uh, yeah. So the overall pollution carbon level would have to would go down gradually over time but that would work through essentially market mechanisms and so you like market mechanisms i do i i love them mike um no i think it's i think that's good although you have to say that the, it's it's something else when the, the government sort of intervenes to create the market in the first place but right governments always do that. you wouldn't you wouldn't need a you wouldn't need a market for this uh it's sort of it's sort of like uh tax preparers right um, you can say there's a great market for tax preparers, but that's only because the government made, made uh, taxes so comp- complicated. Um, and in the end, in the end, you are a more efficient economy would have less complicated taxes and wouldn't have a need for a market for tax preparers who would go on and do something else uh, that would be uh, even more beneficial to the economy. So, so kind of like a, a nothing a, against tax preparers. No, no, but, but just like a more more efficient, uh, less complicated legal system would eliminate the need for yes, a lot of attorneys. Yes, absolutely. So yeah, no, I, I would agree with you 100%. Yeah. Okay. So that that's my less radical proposal. My more radical proposal is, well, we do what uh, uh, every other kind of wealthy country in the world has done, basically, and enact kind of a universal health Medicare for all plan, which by itself, I mean, this is, if you look at uh, a few years back, the Mercatus Center, which is a libertarian think tank, they found that a single payer Medicare for all system would save somewhere around $2 trillion over a decade in and of itself, right? And so... That to me, talk about efficiencies of scale right there. That is, that would be absolutely huge. And not only that, what I believe would, for many reasons, increase access, obviously would increase access and decrease costs. That to me seems like the most obvious win-win that we could possibly have. But yet there is essentially zero chance of that happening anytime in the near future. I tend to agree with you. Yeah. yeah. And you would tend to think for reasons that we've talked about in the past, that that is a very good thing. Yeah. I, I, I'd say a pretty good thing at least. Yeah. And, and um, I think, I think, I think because the is, profit uh, motive fuels innovation, it, it fuels uh, efficiency. Um, uh, and, and I think uh, gives us a, a overall higher quality of healthcare. And whereas, whereas I think one of the, the, the great, one of the great shame, uh, if there is a great shame of this, of the United States in 2023 is it's, it's healthcare system. Uh, but we have had that conversation before. Anyway, any other thoughts before we move on, on the, uh, debt limit, the debt ceiling deal? No, I don't think so. You don't, you don't know, you don't have a third, even more radical plan. Yeah. <laughs> Socialism now. <laughs> no, I, you know, I, yeah. I'm stopping right. with socializing the medicine. So there we go. All right. Okay. Okay, well, let's move on. Actually, uh, I feel like the debt limit deal was good news. And Jay, this is going to be kind of radical, but could we do two good news stories in a row? Maybe. Uh, Let's try it out. So here we go. Here's here's my take. The U.S. economy, uh, the Labor Department released a May jobs report uh, just, I think, yesterday. 
Uh, we added 339,000 jobs. May of 2023 is the 29th straight month of employment increases. And now the unemployment rate did raise, well, rise, it rose, it, it's gone up, man, but only to 3.7. That's from 3.4% in April. And that's still like historic low territory. And, and the, the point is why I think it's good news is this comes despite the fact that I think the last 10 times the Fed could, it's hiked rates. This started in the spring of 2022. And so the federal funds rate, which was essentially zero, is now at the 5 to 5.2% band. And of course, that was in response to some really serious inflation. It peaked around 9.1% in June of 2022, but it has been steadily decreasing ever since then. Now, now it's just under 5%. Hey, that's certainly well over our long-term average of just over 3%. It's well over the Fed's 2% target, but it's definitely much lower and going in the right direction. And what, what I'll call the resilience of the U.S. economy, it surprised plenty of folks, including us. Back in January, we did a prediction show for the upcoming year. Jay, you said, I think we'll enter a mild recession within the next quarter. I didn't disagree with you on that. I said, that seems like a reasonable prediction. Uh, most economists agreed. It seemed difficult, I think, for us to imagine that the Fed could do enough to really put a lid on inflation without there being at least a mild recession. In fact, the, the conference board, which is this independent group of economists, uh, as recently as April, they predicted a 99% chance of a recession in the next year. Um, that's Even smarter people than us. Slightly, yeah. And they said that even though in their report they said, hey, U.S. GDP growth defied expectations in late 2022. Early 2023 data has shown unexpected strength. There's been better than expected consumer spending recently. So it seems weird to us, but we're sticking with our prediction, basically. You know, um, so they, now I should point out also there's been one throughout this period, one kind of significant departure from this conventional wisdom. It comes from Goldman Sachs. Uh, and I, I mentioned Goldman Sachs because that allows me to uh, mention what Matt, Matt Tiabi called them, the great vampire squid wrapped around the face of humanity, relentlessly jamming its blood funnel into anything that smells like money. I love that phrase <laughs> so very much. But anyway, uh, in May, mid-May, so less than a month ago, Goldman reported our U.S. forecast, our U.S. growth forecast for 2023 remains at a well above consensus level. Our 12-month recession probability, well below consensus. We only think it's going to be 35% chance of a recession. Their chief economist said, at least so far, Fed officials have managed to put the economy on a course of gradual wage and price disinflation without the recession predicted by a large majority of economists. So, Jay, what do you think? I mean, first off, has the Fed managed things better than we expected. And ha how has your view of the economy changed if it has since January? So I would, I would say um, there was a, a Wall Street Journal article, uh, it was back a couple months ago, but sort of said like the, the recession that's always six months away. Um, and, I, and maybe I'm, I'm still in that, that camp, right? Um, uh, because it, it, it seems that to, to do the the big break that we've we've been needing to do um, uh, on inflation, it's going to compromise some growth. 
Um, the other weird thing, right? There, there are two measures of pr- productivity. There's, there's GDP, which everybody knows about. Um, and there's GDI, which isn't just like you're not in a fraternity. Um, it's, you know, the gross domestic income. And the sense is that more or less the two should balance out, right? The GDP being the total number of goods and services that the country generates and, and buys and the GDI being the number of in, the income that it, it, uh, it generates. Um, but there's, there's been sort of, there's sort of a weird mismatch where GDI is down, uh, but GDP, uh, has, has not fallen. Um, and that signs, that's, that's a, a cause for, I don't know if worry, but, but just sort of confusion because it's weird. Uh, I, I think part of the weirdness of this is, um, you know, the recession that we came out of, uh, in COVID, if you want to call it a recession, wasn't a regular business cycle recession, right? It was, it was like yeah, all of a sudden everything was shut down and people had jobs, but they couldn't go to them. Um, and then there was the recovery, which was weird in that, again, it wasn't a typical, Hey, we had a business cycle, uh, recession and now we're, we're recovering. It's a lot of people went back to those same jobs, but also a lot of people didn't. So we had this weird, you know, productivity gap, and and that's so the the GDI sort of points at that that productivity gap. Just just um, to, just to clarify, Jay, I, I, I'm sure you meant this that it's not that GDI GDI is down in real terms because this is a quarterly thing. It's actually it's it's in comparison to GDP exactly. So that yeah. we don't we're not seeing them moving as closely linked together. So while GDI is up, it's not as up as we would expect necessarily from the GDP numbers, right? Exactly. Yeah. They, they, the, typically they would, they would track, um, but, but they're not really. Um, but you know, so I, that's, I, that I think is, is sort of a, you know, is there sort of this idea of, well, can you have a, like a full employment recession? Um, I, I mean, you would think that you can't, I don't, I don't know uh, where you have sort of, uh, again, several quarters and we, we did actually have, two quarters of negative growth, um, but a uh, full, you know, more or less full employment. Um, so I, I don't know. That's, that's what I'm saying is I think there's some extent we're in sort of uncharted waters here. Regardless, un- regardless, people having jobs is a good thing, right? And I guess it's it's one of those, if you have a, uh, uh, a recession, um, but no one gets laid off, well, did you really have a recession, right? Exactly, or, or yeah. maybe just a, well, so what? Um, you know, in, in, in that case, actually, you could say, well, that's, that'd be the, the best of, of all worlds that you have this sort of recession that, that, uh, tames inflation, but, uh, uh, everybody, uh, keeps working. Um, now whether or not that's, that's actually possible, we'll see the other pause. And, and I'm, I'm wading into some weird economic stuff that's probably out of my depth. It's just, you know, stuff I've read. Um, the other issue would be, uh, if you, if you have the the um, uh, sort of full employment, does does inflation become stickier, right? right uh, yeah. People get used to paying the bigger prices. Companies realize they can get away with uh, continuing to charge uh, higher prices. Um, and then is that is that uh, you know positive or negative uh, long term? Um, so that's 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 where I'm coming out, Mike. Is a, yes, good jobs report. I'm all for it. Um, recession. Uh, I think there still could be one in the next six months. Um, what that recession looks like, it may be something different than something that we've typically seen, um, or or not. So, yeah, no, I I agree with you. We're, we're in things. Things are weird. 
right? You wouldn't, there, there's no way you would expect the Fed to increase rates 10 times, like 10 times in a row uh, and, and not have some sort of significant uh, effect. We certainly didn't expect that, right? And it, it's uh, almost the opposite of, of modern monetary yeah. theory, right? Well, it, 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 it's weird. And, but then again, the I think side of it. so then there are people who are like, well, this should have happened. And so we look for reasons why it's still going to happen. But, but I think you're right. We're, we're in, it feels like somewhat uncharted waters here. And now I know the Fed uh, has uh, said that, that they won't likely be raising rates at their next meeting, which I think is in a couple of weeks, but they probably will, or they planned on doing so at the meeting after that later on this summer. But, and then there's the, there's the whole debt ceiling deal that actually is factors into this. Uh, Bloomberg's chief U.S. economist said, well, she thinks that this deal will make a recession more likely, will make a recession if it, if it happens last longer and the recovery be less robust than it otherwise would have been, which that doesn't sound like a, a good thing. And, and the reasoning behind this is that, well, this will, in fact, slow government spending. And uh, if you slow spending, well, that will you know, increase the odds of going into a recession, basically. And so Bloomberg's model has it cutting a half percent off of GDP by the fourth quarter of 2024. And according to them, if there had just been a clean debt ceiling deal without any of these other factors, uh, this would have actually resulted in 350,000 more jobs than what we will see. And so now, again, those models are very speculative, but whenever you cut spending or don't increase spending that, I mean, it makes sense. It tracks basically, but there's, there's the short term about, you know, the likelihood of a recession in current economic conditions based on longer term fiscal sustainability. They're two kind of separate issues, basically. Right. And as, as, uh, still remember, as, as Sinead O'Connor said, uh, fight the real enemy. Um, it's, it's inflation, right? Uh, so you can say that that Bloomberg study says, OK, well, it, it, this makes a recession more likely. But it also um, uh, those spending cuts are anti-inflationary. Yeah. But but of course, inflation and, has and, been going and, down. And, and, and complement and complement no, and complement uh, the Fed's uh, the Fed's efforts. OK, because right. I mean, because I, I don't I don't think you can. Yeah, I'm sorry. I keep interrupting you, but I don't think you can have it both ways to say like, well, uh, when there's inflation, it's uh, it's only because the Fed is is uh, putting too much money out there. Uh, but when there's a recession, it's because the government isn't spending enough money. Right. But but I mean, you, you realize and of course, you realize this, that inflation has been going down every single month since you know June of for, for roughly a year, basically. And so what I'm saying is that some would argue that, well, you didn't necessarily need to do anything else because it seemed to be happening not on its own, but with the Fed action on its own. And so there's the danger of doing too much, especially in a, a iffy economy, at least according to a lot of our standard standard metrics. And the time to deal with this kind of thing is not when you think you might be on the verge of a recession, but when you're in. I mean, that's kind of standard kind of Keynesian economics, basically. Yeah, but it's also. I mean, it, that would that would say that you have to understand there is still a long term debt problem that we have to deal with. Yeah, absolutely. And and you that, and I, that, you and you I know, agree on that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So my my point is my my point is it's it's I, I mean I don't think Bloomberg could just say aha this might cause, um you know, yeah no basically though I mean what they do in those models is they say well here are all our you know here are all our uh, suppositions and we plug this in and then when we change this variable here's what we get differently and you know those models aren't they're, they're certainly not 
fortune teller predictions of the future. They're just, you know, the best things that economists can try to do to uh, model uh, the near future in a highly uncertain, very complex world. All right, well, let's move on to something entirely different. This week, the Republican uh, majority, strong majority Republican Texas House impeached the state's Republican Attorney General, Ken Paxton, in an overwhelming 121 to 23 vote, with 60 of the chamber's 82 Republicans supporting impeachment. Now, this comes this comes despite Donald Trump urging Texas Republicans to support Paxton. Before the vote, Trump wrote on True Social, hopefully Republicans in the Texas House will agree that this is a very unfair process that should not be allowed to happen or proceed. I will fight you if it does. It is the radical left Democrats, rhinos, and criminals that never stop election interference, all caps, exclamation, free Ken Paxton, let them wait for the next election. And then later he wrote, all caps, missing in action. Where is the governor of Texas on his attorney general's impeachment? Now, uh, Paxton, he was first elected, elected attorney general 2014. He's had ethical issues from pretty much the beginning. He was indicted for securities fraud in 2015. He somehow managed to delay a trial on those charges up to this point, which is pretty impressive, actually. Um, now, if we take a really good lawyer, you know, I guess I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> there, now, there were 20 articles of impeachment against actually, him. Actually, I mean, I, I tell you the main part, I, I would also say he, he adopted some, took some really pretty uh, what we would call the profession, um, crazy ass positions. Yeah, well, it um, seemed to have worked so far, right? I mean, <laughs> but, but if we look more recently at these 20 articles of impeachment, uh, they include multiple counts of disregard of official duty, a misapplication of public resources, constitutional bribery, including employment of his mistress. Uh, there's always nice to add in that, uh, obstruction of justice, false statements in official records, conspiracy, dereliction of duty, abuse of public trust, and what well, we'll throw in unfitness for office. Um, now Paxton, of course, has been a strong supporter of Donald Trump. That included, Jay, you'll remember this. He filed as Texas attorney general, that bizarre Texas lawsuit that tried to invalidate election results in other states. Pennsylvania. Yeah. Yes, that was that was one of the positions I was referring to. Yeah, that was a, a weird one. And uh, but, you know, uh, Paxton won the Republican primary to retain his office in 2022 after most of this was out. Now, he couldn't get over 50 percent in the initial primary, but he easily won the runoff against George P. Bush. And then he easily won the general election. So. I, I I don't know, Jay. There, there, what do you? Well, first off, let's talk about the move from the impeachment to the where the Texas Senate now will have to vote to convict him or not. That would require a two thirds majority, just like at the federal level. Do you think that uh, the Texas Senate convicts uh, the Attorney General there? Um, so I'll I'll start with the caveat that I I don't know uh, enough about Texas internal politics to to really make a uh, qualify, you know what I mean? To, to, to really say, Oh, I know, I know how they're going to, going to vote. My sense is just from, again, the outside stuff that I read is, is that there would be enough votes, uh, there to impeach him. Um, we'll see. There's a whole lot of, there's a whole lot of stuff going on. Uh, and this is more than just a, I, I don't think you can say this is just the, the political witch hunt sort of, sort of thing. There's, there's smoke and there is some fire. Um, and uh, I think there are a lot of folks in Texas who are just, you know, tired of tired of the drama, right? 
there's there's that piece of it too. So you can get um, people who give you all of again. I don't have any particular knowledge as, as to you know how the Texas Senate works or the the internal things there, but but my sense is uh, uh, it doesn't look good for for Paxton. You know, I think Trump supported him because. I believe Trump has a vested interest in making all the investigations and impeachment proceedings uh, against people of the right look illegitimate, right? I mean, that seems pretty straightforward. But what, well, and, and again, Trump Trump's thing is uh, you know loyalty above all else, and uh, well, I no loyalty know, to him, but him. not not from him, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But yeah, Paxton stuck uh, stuck with Trump, so he will uh, you know stick with Paxton. Yeah, I don't think loyalty uh, is until anything. until let's put it this way until uh, until he's impeached. Or until he's yeah convicted. Well, no, even if he's convicted, because I, I don't think I, I I I buy your loyalty argument in one sense. Trump believes that everyone should have not loyalty but fealty toward him, but I don't think he believes at all that he needs to oh, he owes anyone any kind of loyalty uh, on his part. That's just not how his mind works. I don't think I don't think there's anything in his lifetime that would suggest that that he cares about loyalty. Right, that's what I'm saying. Okay. Is, is I think. Uh, Trump eventually throws Paxton over the side. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. But at this point, he views it as, here's somebody who is for me and other people who are typically against me. But what um, do you think of the fact that despite that, 60 of the 82 Republicans, that's a huge majority in that chamber, and Texas is a very, very, I mean, you know, that that's a very Republican state, and yet 60 out of those 82. Not just Republicans, they're Texas Republicans. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they ignored Donald Trump. Right. And what do you make of that? What is that? Does that tell you anything about Donald Trump? Well, it tells it tells me a lot about Texas Republicans. OK, right? what does it but tell you? They're, they're, lo they're looking at this and they're saying, no, look, uh, the the evidence uh, we can be conservatives all hell. Uh, but there's a whole lot of evidence to pointing to uh, uh, Paxton being a crook um, and Donald, you know, loyalty or appreciation for or warm feelings towards Donald Trump uh, is not going to change that. Yeah, I, when I read, uh, I read the various comments on the right about this, not just from Trump, because Trump being Trump isn't necessarily representative of anything, right? Uh, Ted Cruz, the Texas senator, wrote, uh, what is happening to Ken Paxton is a travesty. For the last nine years, Ken has been the strongest conservative AG in the country, bar none. No attorney general has battled the abuses of the Biden administration more ferociously and more effectively than has Paxton. And, you know, it occurred to me when I read that is, if you just cut the first sentence from that tweet, I, I would I would disagree with some of the characterizations, but I, I think that would be a perfectly respectable tweet from someone from the right. But calling what is happening to Ken Paxton a travesty, that that totally I think that totally undermines everything right. else. You, you could you could you could very well say um, uh, this guy has been a great warrior in the you know conservative front. Um, uh, it's a shame that this has uh, apparently happened and we'll see where the facts lead. You know what I mean? There's exactly. Something like that. You know, and now yeah. he, he sort of tried to dig himself out of that later on. He's like, well, you know, uh, there was an election that people knew about this. So let's let the voters deal with this. And that's, that's, even if I disagree with that, that's at least more reasonable of an argument than, well, hey, you know, it's just, this is a, this is a pro Trump, tough conservative guy. So it doesn't matter how corrupt he might be. Any action against him is a travesty. That's, I think, kind of ridiculous. Well, and also, again, it's it's, it's a tough argument to make when it's uh, 60 of 80 Republicans, Texas Republicans, uh, are voting to impeach him. Exactly. But then again, we might not put a whole lot of, a whole lot of uh, stock in what anyone 
in what any single tweet right from someone and like i said when you all right any any other thoughts on uh ken paxton's impeachment and potential removal not really other other than i, I think it does point out that uh to the extent that there's the argument that, that trump controls the republican party i don't think he does um he might have some some big grassroots support uh but it's not it's not showing uh in texas uh it didn't show in georgia um and uh i i don't think it's going to you know or that you know uh, i i take i take solace in the knowledge that maybe you can be too corrupt for the republican party so no matter how strong of a maybe. conservative you are so <laughs> you know there's there's that anyway uh speaking of no uh, this would be an awful segue but but uh you would appreciate it <laughs> speaking of corruption let's talk about the supreme court did you like that oh that's sorry oh, no. yeah, yeah. I, see what, I see what you did there yeah, yeah right. anyway so I, I do want to talk about this though uh there were you know we talked about the supreme court and the allegations about justice thomas and all that sort of stuff but listeners will recall that after all that or, or this spring Chief Justice Roberts sent a statement on ethics to the Senate Judiciary Committee, and it was signed by all of the justices. And among the things in the statement, Roberts said, well, you know, in recent years, there have been around 200 recusals per year at the search stage, a few at the merit stage. And while in many cases, the reasons are pretty obvious, under these new guidelines, and I quote, a justice also may provide an extended explanation for any decision to recuse or not recuse. And this was signed by all of the justices, you know, basically saying, yeah, we, we agree with this. Now, late last month, Justice Kagan became the first justice to follow that guideline in a sense, because there was an, there was an order denying a petition for a rehearing in a case, Holland versus Florida. And in that order, it was noted that Justice Kagan took no part in the consideration or decision of this petition and this was followed by a citation of the federal statutes that govern um, recusal for lower court judges and prior government employment. And the right, reason for she this, had represented somebody when she was. Yeah, she was solicitor general. Right? And then yeah. when when this because uh, Holland's been on the death row for a while, basically, I think it's the thing. So now, according to the group fixed the court, this is the first time in over a century, maybe the first time ever that the court has included a recusal explanation in its orders list. Um, now, I guess they would maybe not know forever because there are a lot of orders lists, and my God, they are dull as dishwater to, to read through. But, uh, but anyway, right. now more recently, Justice Alito decided not to follow Justice Kagan's lead. Uh, in the court's order list from May 30th, Justice Alito did recuse himself from a case. It was uh, BG Gulf Coast versus Sabine uh, Natchez. But this was done without explanation, though, if you kind of take a look at dig through the data, it's maybe because Alito holds stock in Phillips 66, according to his financial disclosure form, and they're a party to the case. But that wasn't mentioned in the order. So I guess, Jay, what I'm wondering is, do you think that Alito should have done what Kagan did and possibly started a trend toward at least somewhat slightly greater transparency regarding recusal. What do you think? Yeah, no, I think it's fine. <laughs> yeah, I, um, I, to, to some extent, I, I think that the, the less judges talk, uh, the stuff that's not on the record, um, the better, right? Um, look, he recused himself. Uh, that should be, that should be fine. Um, 
I'm not sure as far as, you know, Kagan's refusal, again, if there's just the, the citation that, you know, this is why. Um, I don't know. I, I suppose. I See, to me, I understand what you're saying. but And I should point out that this was not uh, an extended explanation on Kagan's case, right? It was like two right, lines. So just it was, here's the citation. And, and yeah, you had to read the, know why it was to, you had to, you had to take an extra step. Yeah, in fact. To connect the dots. Although, although most people reading this, again, I connected the dots uh, instantaneously, Mike. Uh, yeah, well, of course, yeah. I, yeah. See, I, I would argue that just, I would have liked to have seen Justice Kagan do more. For instance, I would say real transparency would have been not just citing statutes, but more of a, and it's fine to have them at the end. It's your, 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 your judges, you know, you got to have a, right, that reference, but something like Justice Kagan served as U.S. Solicitor General when this applicant filed the previous petition, which he views as a conflict under blah, 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 statute, blah, 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 that sort of thing. And, and that would have been, it seems to me that takes almost nothing. It's it's basically just making slightly clearer what you can figure out, what court watchers can figure out anyway. It's just like a nod, a, the tiniest little no effort nod. Justice Alito could have done the same thing. Justice Alito recuses himself because of a financial interest in Phillips 66, a party of the case under blah, blah, blah. You know, it, it would take almost nothing. Here's my concern is that if the court is not willing to do something that I can't think of anything more minimal that that's moving the in the area of transparency. It requires almost nothing of the justices. And what this tells me is, or what this suggests to me, it doesn't tell me, what it suggests to me is that they don't think there's a problem. They don't think there's a problem with transparency. They don't think there's a problem with ethics. They just think there's this little brouhaha that they can just basically ignore because they're the Supreme Court. And that that really bothers me. Uh what, what what's your reaction to that? I'm not I'm not clear why it bothers you so much. Um, I mean, seriously, I'm honestly kind of perplexed because it, to me, it's it seems like, um, well, Alito did the right thing. Um, uh, Kagan did the right thing. Well, I, uh, I, I guess it's because it's because of legitimacy. What, what are we? It's because of perceived legitimacy. There is no question. I don't think any reasonable person could say that the court is not facing at least a mild crisis of legitimacy. And given that, given that, given that large numbers of Americans have lost faith, have lost trust in the court, and part of the reason why is they feel there should be more transparency, if the court has an opportunity to do something at essentially no cost to itself, there might be at least some little nod towards saying like, hey, we care about our perceived legitimacy. That tells me that the court doesn't care about perceived legitimacy. And they're saying, you know what? The problem, American public, is not with us. It's with you. And whenever any of our government officials say, hey, people in the American public, the problem is you, not us, your public servants. Right there, that sets up a huge red flag. And I think it would for any true small government conservative. No, so I, I think the, the the way I look at this is they're they're preserving the sort of the dignity of the court to not get into the mud on this sort of thing right um do you do you think little do you think somehow sheldon whitehouse um will ex would accept uh and I'm, I'm i haven't read what he's said about this but um judging what what you're saying about alito that uh, it was not enough or at kagan it was not enough um 
you know, do we put these extra, uh, can the, the legislature, uh, or the public just through, you know, through causing this commotion or, or, um, creating a, a crisis of legitimacy, legitimacy, so to speak, um, you know, make the court do, do stuff that it doesn't have to do, shouldn't have to do. Uh, I think you uphold the dignity of the court by saying we have these rules. We just we made public what those rules are. Uh, here we are following the rules. Um, and now you want us to explain uh, why we're following the rules. Um, I, I think that's I think that's an invitation to to a slippery slope. See, and it yeah. is sort of this. And, and, and no, but 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 hear me out. Right. Because here's the, the exact the exact thing is uh, a couple of weeks ago. It was this. Oh, my gosh. Uh, you know. Justices don't have to refuse, recuse themselves, and they get to be their own judge of whether or not they recuse themselves, which is, of course, as, as old as the law, right? There's That's nothing new. Um, so, you know, then this, well, what are we going to do? And, and uh, we need to, you know, we demand ethics reform. And the court writes back, says, yeah, here's our, our rules, and we live by them. And then they follow the rules. But that still isn't enough. So my, my point is that that is very much the, you know, we've gone down the slope already. Uh, a couple notches, and then if the if the expectation is okay, not only do you have to recuse yourself, you have to explain why. Um, well, okay, you have a financial interest in this company. Okay, um, well, you need to explain how much of a financial interest. Uh, well, okay, it's this many shares of stock. Well, how did you get that? that those shares of stock. Well, you really ought to explain that. But that, but let's, um, let me stop. Let me stop you in your logical fallacy. Because, sure, there are slopes that are slippery, but, Jay, not every slope is slippery. And there's democratic processes to stop this. And I think what you're ignoring is the arrogance of power. And it's kind of shocking to me that as a conservative, as a real, true blue conservative, you would, you would, not, you would not have at least some problem with, uh, with, with a group of, of uh, that practically define elites essentially saying, explain ourselves. We don't have to explain ourselves to you. We shouldn't. In fact, even if we wanted to, I mean, we, there's nothing. Why should we? You, 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 P.I. That to me, that to me cuts against everything that America is supposed to be about. I find it repugnant. Not that I'm not saying that we can force the court, the Supreme Court, we can force lower courts. There are judicial ethics standards, right? But the idea that the court would be so either so blind or so arrogant, I don't think the court's corrupt. We've talked about this, but they would be so blind or so arrogant to think that they don't owe anyone an explanation because, of course, our own virtue is protection enough. We know we are making the right decisions for the right reasons because we are the court. That makes me just that makes me ill. That's that's the kind of stuff that we moved away from. I'm not sure. I'm not sure what I can prescribe for that. Yeah, you know, uh, I don't. Other I, than other than to say the the judiciary uh is is not and was never intended to be a populist uh representative institution it 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 was supposed to be counter democratic uh and it is and i think when you start getting into uh the judiciary being quote unquote responsive uh to to democratic uh, uh calls for for whatever um, it, it erodes its own power. Uh, I think that's, that's well, no, the problem, I, and I think that's what I they're guarding agree. against. I mean, the, and, and again, keep in mind, the court does, it, it is, in, in a weird way, uh, the only body of government 
it does have to give a reason for what it does. It, right. it writes actual opinions. Jeff. I mean, when somebody votes on something on Congress, they can vote, they can make a speech or not make a speech or whatever. Um, uh, but, but the courts actually are required to, to exercise reason, write an opinion, uh, and, and show, show their work. Um, again, this is not something that there, there's no historical precedent for, uh, uh, justices or courts sort of explaining why they recuse themselves. Uh, it, it's just, uh, uh, they do it. And, you know, look, I think if there's if there's the question the other way around of should someone have recused himself, um, that's sort of, more sort of a different question. But it's almost like, um, <laughs> you know, I, I again, I just I the, so to me, so the, the Kagan thing, that's that's just an absolute no brainer. Right. That's like an sure, automatic, yeah. that, you know, and everybody knows that. Um so yeah, she shouldn't have to go out of her way to explain. No, and I, I wouldn't expect any kind of I, I wouldn't expect any kind of a detailed sort of thing, you know. But but again, it, like I said, it doesn't seem to me that it's it's asking very much uh, to just do more or less what Kagan did. I would have maybe had one more sentence to make it clear, but that's that's essentially asking almost nothing. It requires almost nothing of the court, and yet it seems to me the court is unwilling to do. Almost nothing. Do you think the the congressional calls and the calls on the left um, will be satisfied? No, I, I agree with that. you there, but that that's not my point. They will continue. They will continue to say, "Well, we want more details on this transaction." Well, sure. And when did you talk? And Absolutely. Why didn't, you, why didn't you recuse yourself earlier? But that's um, not the same argument. That's not the same argument. No, it, it is. It's sort no, of it's it's not. the argument is it's we're not. entitled to no, transparency, so we're it, entitled it's to not. as much transparency it's as not. we can get. It's not, okay. Jay. It's it's saying I am saying because I I am saying that I think the court could do this bare minimum. I am not saying that therefore the court should do whatever liberals, right? Because it's mostly it's coming from the left. The left wants it to do. I am saying that this to me is not a slippery slope. That there are reasonable limits for certain things, and you believe that not all slopes are slippery, but. So I, I do not see why these are not separate things. I'm not arguing that this will fix everything. I'm not arguing this is going to satisfy the partisans who want the court to behave differently for their own reasons. I am arguing about what I believe to be reasonable and right and proper. And that's a different argument. That's all I'm saying. Well, I, I, I think there's nothing unreasonable or improper about about the way they've recused themselves this is the way recusals have always been handled forever and ever um so yeah, yeah that's that's yeah. what sort of stuns me why i say slippery slope because well these these concerns are just coming up now uh as it turns out uh there are some decisions that that uh those on the left don't like and and they have very much an interest in trashing the reputation of the court um, yes, but also there and this been, is going to be just stop, part of that stop. because you can always ask more questions, and at some point when the court stops answering, the the thing is, well, what are they hiding? But also there have been some non-trivial allegations raised about members of the court and about leaks and things, and not only that, but we know that the court in modern life has played a much larger role for a lot of reasons. So if you have a court that is far more, you could argue far more influential than it's ever been for a variety of reasons and a court in which not unreasonable questions have been raised about outside activities, not saying that these allegations are, have been proven or anything like that, 
But you combine those things together and say, well, sure, okay, the court maybe was able to do things differently in the past, had different traditions and modes of dealing with things and procedures that made sense in the context of the time. It used to be, for instance, that the court did not was not uh, did not broadcast arguments, even audio of arguments right after that changed with the times. I'm, I'm all for tradition and the dignity of the court, but I also think that traditions and customs and rules have to be cognizant of the overall environment and just freezing them in amber at some point in the past because, well, that's what we've always done. I, even, even Burke would say that that's, that's not okay. That yes, you need to change institutions with the times. You just want to make sure you don't change them too quickly. And I'm certainly for that. And certainly what I'm proposing is not hard, is not any kind of massive White Houseian, if you will, uh, Sheldon, White Houseian change. Yeah. Um, what, what information uh, should be included in the recusal statement? Well, I, uh, again, I think uh, I suggested like kind of right along the lines of what what uh, Justice Kagan did, and, and maybe just a little bit more in plain language, it would take no time okay. at all. That, and what? And what? And again, what? What problem does that solve when you were able to determine, uh, without a whole lot of effort, that the reason he recused himself was because, based on his financial disclosures, which were disclosed, um, he had an interest in in the, the uh, one of the parties. It doesn't solve any problem. It's it's a gesture. When when you're uh, when you're an institution that people are rightly or wrongly questioning the legitimacy of, and you have an opportunity to make a gesture, even if it doesn't solve the problem, and you decide no, in fact, we won't make that gesture, it gives people even more reason to wonder if you have succumbed to the arrogance of of unchecked power. Yeah, I, I don't. Even, I, I would be surprised if there was ever any thought or discussion on on whether there ought to be a gesture. This was a matter. This is just a matter of, um, you know, I'm refusing myself. I'm that's if that's so. What well, you do. I, 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 I mean, I, my point is, no one's ever done. No one's ever done this uh, before. I'll disagree with you, and I'll disagree because read the if you read the language, and of course, these justices they are all masters of language, right? You would agree that they do not put in even single words here or there that they do not think about when they know it's for public consumption. So I'm going to read that sentence again, Jay. A justice, right, also, a justice also may provide an extended explanation for any decision to recuse or not recuse. Why would they put that in? Why would they put in especially that last part or not recuse? That would be totally. Well, I think that the not recusal would be would be more important, right? That would be a place where if there are calls saying, uh, "I think uh, you shouldn't be hearing this case," uh, just uh, justice says, uh, "No, here's why," and that is sort of defending the the dignity and the um, the reputation of the court of saying, "Look, here's the reason why I'm I'm not recusing." Um, but to me, the big word in there is, is may. Well, certainly. I mean, that's not shall. Yeah. And, and I, and I guess my, my sense is there wouldn't be much, much sense to doing a statement when you are recusing. I, I just don't see, you know, explain. I'm, I'm not I, sure. I don't see the need for it. Again, you think greater transparency, it makes somebody feel better. Okay. Um, I, I just don't see the, the need for it. And to me, it just opens up a, a door of of the well. Why didn't why didn't we get more of a statement uh, and and you know that sort of thing? 
I'm I'm still I'm 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 I know I'm I'm legitimately puzzled by by why this is working you up so much. Well, I, because I I think that while I do not believe at all that the court is corrupt, and we've talked about this, you know, what, what they're basing, what they're starting backwards from their policy preferences to reach their decisions. I do believe, and I believe this for forever, that people in positions of power that have essentially no checks on that power that are very isolated, they tend to get blinders. They, there, there is an arrogance that comes sure. with no, unchecked power. And I think that this is, we're seeing this in real life. I, I truly believe that the justices are, most of them probably are, are looking at this and saying, I don't see what the big deal is. We're good people. We're not doing the wrong thing. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Exactly. And what I'm saying is that's the blindness of it. Not, it's not corruption. It's being cut off from that sort of real world accountability and checks that that leads to that. And, and that to me is is a concern. That's always a concern with people, even of the best intentions uh, in power, especially in power for extended periods of time, that they lose that connection with the real world. I mean, on the right, people talk about that all the time with ivory tower academics. And here I'm talking about someone, a group far more influential in American life the Supreme Court of the United States, and their tenure's a lot better than mine. Yeah. Again, I, I just come back to there was never, it, it's not as if there's, I don't know. Again, the, the Supreme Court is not designed, intended to be responsive uh, to, to the, the public. Uh, and I, I think the more, the more they, the, the more court talks, uh, you know, saying, I, I hear what you're saying. Let me stop you. There are two arguments here. Number one is maybe the argument from design, uh, if you will, that, yeah, this wasn't, but that, that isn't really an argument. It's more of an appeal to authority, right? That, and because, well, the framers didn't want it this way. But to me, what you're saying, the more substantive argument here, the real argument. Not, is, not just the framers, but I mean, the, the court traditions that the framers incorporate. Yeah, but again, that's just an appeal to authority, appeal to tradition. It's a different authority. Fair but enough. That's, yeah. But the real substantive argument as well is more of a at what if we allow any sort of accountability if we if we expect any sort of accountability at what point does it stop if we just keep it if we just keep yes say, yes that's my that's my argument yeah absolutely i understand that argument and i think it's a i think it's a a, a reasonable non-fallacious argument and this is where i think maybe you're mishearing me is I don't not accept that argument, but I think there is more value to a small degree of what I see to be reasonable transparency under the current conditions in which the court is operating and its level of power. I think that fair is enough. worth the risk of a potential slippery slope. All right. Fair enough. All right. Well, on that, we have reached the end of this episode. And thanks so much for listening. If you're not already a supporter, we hope you'll consider becoming one. This absolutely would not be possible without you. And as a supporter, you get access to our Politics Guys Discord group, which is always a lot of fun. There is, you get ad-free episodes or editions of everything we put out, Politics Guys gear and other benefits at the $10 a month more. You get to be part of that listener, uh, listener, listener participation uh, segment that Jay and I uh, just did. Uh, that's going to be a lot of fun. So if you want to check all that out, 
Uh, go to patreon.com slash politicsguys. We're also on Venmo at politicsguys. You can also support us through PayPal. And as always, all of those support links are in the show notes as well as at politicsguys.com slash support. If you want to get in touch with us for any reason, there is that Discord. There is Twitter and Facebook links in the show notes as well as old-fashioned email. You can get us there, mail at politicsguys.com. And finally, as always, an extra special thanks to our wonderful executive producers, Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andre Masker, Daniel Toe, Ryan Beasley, Don Oglesby, and Ivan English. We'll be back with a new episode for you next week. We hope you'll join us.